2017 marks the centennial of the women's suffrage movement in New York State and its success in gaining women's right to vote. This fall, the centennial has been celebrated across the state and two new books cover every angle of the movement, its key players and the success it found. I'm Martin Beanie and this is 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm joined today by Johanna Newman, the author of Gilded Suffragists, the New York socialites who fought for women's right to vote, and Susan Goodyear and Karen Pastorello, the authors of Women Will Vote, Winning Suffrage in New York State. Gilded Suffragists tells the story of more than 200 of New York's wealthiest social figures, with names like Astor, Belmont, and Vanderbilt, and their activity in the Votes for Women campaign. When they traded their social cachet for political power, they became the first celebrities in the 20th century to endorse a political cause, and they helped push Votes for Women over the finish line. Women Will Vote highlights the activism of rural, urban, African-American, Jewish, immigrant, and European-American women, as well as male suffragists, both upstate and downstate, that led to the positive outcome of the 1917 referendum. If women had failed to gain the vote in New York, Goodyear and Pastorello say, there is good reason to believe that the passage and ratification of the 19th Amendment would have been delayed. Well, welcome, Susan, Karen, and Johanna. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye. So here we are in uh, 2017 and um, kind of really gearing up for the centennial uh, of the women's suffrage movement in New York State. And so it seemed like a really good, smart time to talk to you all as experts uh, in this particular subject and for much more as well. So I ask you all, really, why was New York... Uh, state, city, the whole thing, uh, important to the national movement um, of women's suffrage? I'm thinking that victory in New York in 1917 at the very least contributed to a feeling of inevitability, that there is a march of progress toward a federal amendment. After all, New York had 43 members, the largest delegation in Congress, and they were all needed in the fight to come. And I also think psychologically that New York, because it was, it was important because it was the nation's financial and media center. I mean, New York City alone had 29 daily newspapers and a vibrant immigrant press. So it was an influential driver of public opinion nationally. Absolutely. And we have to add in the fact that it's the first it becomes the first state that enfranchises women on the east side of the Mississippi. So all the other states that had done this so far had been western states with much uh, a much lesser population. So this this is a big deal. I mean, there's other campaigns going on in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and these other states, but New York, with all the things that Johanna has mentioned added to the fact that it is on the East Coast um, really makes it seem like that that inevitability point that she made in the beginning is that it's true. I think it launches the momentum, too, towards the federal amendment. It, it 
keeps it moving with everything that Johanna and Susan mentioned. It it gives New York gives the nation the spirit and the and the hope to move forward. I so, love that. So is is in, in are you sort of saying in many ways uh, to use a more contemporary phrase that really New York State is the tipping point? Absolutely, absolutely, no question about it. No question about it. The 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 other states drop off. But there there's some activity in the state for a state level um, enfranchisement, but it's the the national leaders. Just they barely bother with it. They they put all their energy into into the federal amendment. New York is critical, absolutely critical. They themselves said, the suffragist leaders themselves said, New York is is critical to the national movement. Hmm. So that's where they took the energy. Okay, so it, uh, um, Susan and Karen, in your book, you're looking at sort of. Um, uh, maybe a, a less wealthy selection of society, perhaps, and in Johanna, in your book, it's it's more of the sort of social elite. Is that fair to say? And if yes, how and why did the two groups uh, differ, and what 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 role what did they have uh, in the state movement and then beyond? Well, I think what we're doing, in fact, is we consider uh, the elite leadership is part of our book, but we do have some fo more focus on the rural areas in the state. Um, we actually have a chapter on rural women, and it's the places of the campaign that make all the difference. The tactics and the strategies have to be adopted so that they are appealing to rural women. So the canvassing, um, it it goes on in much more remote areas. When you're talking about rural areas, farms, uh, through snow, through rain, through the elements, state fairs are a huge draw for rural the rural population, both men and women. Um, and so they, the leaders are sure to set up booths at the state fairs, and that gets more intense as we get closer to the election in 1915 and 1917. And also places like post office and stores carry literature that's um, very much pro-suffrage. And of course, sometimes the antis do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I would, you I know, would really want to. I would like to make a point about. Um, this elite and the other groups, Karen mentions the, the rural women, but immigrant women, rural women, black women, uh, radical women, all of these groups, you'll notice elite women, while they have the power behind them and their connections to men in power, they themselves are not the majority of people. The other groups are really the majority, and suffrage is not successful until the women who are connected with men who are the majority are able to convince to convince those men okay women need the right to vote so that's why the rural women why immigrant women why these other groups of women are so critical to the movement the elite women could not do it alone in spite of their power they couldn't there weren't simply weren't enough votes from elite men in order to be able to pass it. So I think that that has a lot to do with why you get the, there's tensions there because of the differences. But the bottom line is it's men who make the decision and it's the 
I, I don't disagree with any of that, but I do have a slightly different, as, as won't surprise you, a slightly different view of it. In Gilded Suffragists, I talk about these wealthy women as the media celebrities of the day. I mean, the newspapers covered them for every, you know, every change of attire and decor and, and party um, entertainment. I mean, they were trendsetters. And they were also uh, accustomed to running things. They managed huge estates with sizable staffs. Um, this point came home to me when I listened to the oral history of one of the secretaries, the Catherine Dewar Mackey, who lived on mm -hmm. a 628-acre estate in Roslyn and had, you know, 20 housemaids and 12 kitchen staff, and I forget how many butlers. Um, but the point is that I think that these women were actually, they weren't credited for this because of the time, but looking back now, I think they were actually executives um, in everything but name. And so when they joined the movement, they, for the most part, they were not interested in joining NASA or the Congressional Union. They tended to form their own organizations. They wanted to make their own splash, like they did in, in setting fashions, and they did make their own splash. I think what's fair to say is that they helped put the movement on the map in terms of public opinion, in terms of celebrity buzz. But I think you are right that it was the middle class and the working class and the rural class and the immigrants and the radicals who might have had more to do with greasing the wheels of forward motion. So it sounds in some ways, uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the classic uh, tension isn't right the, word, the right word exactly, but the classic differences between the city and, and the rest of the state in many ways were part and parcel um, of the movement 100 years ago. That seems like, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about in some ways. Yes, certainly in some ways, yeah. 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 In some ways, and, and there were also fairly elite um, women in some of these very small towns. You know, they were leading their own segments of the movement in their rural assembly districts. So mm. some of those elite women um, cross, you know, place lines as well. Right. So what lessons and, can and we? Just, what lessons can we learn from from the grassroots movement of the day? I mean, are there things we can take away and and bring into our modern era now? It's coalition. And I think it's, I really think, and this is, this is what Karen and, Karen and I did focus on in, in, in this, is it's that those connections between groups that are, it, there's a lot of disparity between these groups, that many of them could not agree on anything but the right, the, the desire for the right to vote. And that's the same kind of thing. If we're going to make change today, it's got to be, it's got to transcend our differences in, in order to focus on what whatever the specific goals are. It's, it's, it's that making those coalitions that cross gender, race, um, all of these other differences, ethnicities, and those kinds of differences, that that's where the success comes from. Mm -hmm. I, I, I totally agree. I, yeah. You know, I collected flyers produced by labor unions that praised the work of, quote, women of leisure, unquote. And I marveled whenever I saw 
that gilded suffragists were joining the picket line um, on the Lower East Side to, to get better right. working conditions for garment industry um, factory workers. I mean, there were undeniably, as someone mentioned earlier, great tensions between them. And famously, I think some union organizers like Teresa Malkiel would have nothing to do with the elite um, and were very suspicious of their motives. But I think Susan is right. It's the cross-class coalition. And you see it over and over again in the progressive era. It's not just about suffrage. Um, right. You know, in campaigns for sanitary milk for mothers or how to reform governance at City Hall. It's, it's the, the great um, contribution of that era. And I sometimes marvel if it was, in, or I wonder if it was unprecedented. Like, was there such a thing during the American Revolution or was that more a revolt <laughs> of the landed gentry? <laughs> Um, yeah, right. And and also to the point, I mean, I am not sure we could have it again. Um, I'm yeah. not sure the, that's what will make change in this generation. I think the other thing that's clear from suffrage history, which I hadn't realized before I started looking at it, is that the states in this country improved an incubator for social change. So you have all these states, as you mentioned earlier, franchising women, mostly they start in the West. But by 1916, I think there are 12 states where women can vote, and they make a margin of difference for Woodrow Wilson's re-election. So, I mean, if anything is going to contribute to inevitability, it seems to me it's that. And that, you know, we, we saw this again with with gays and the marriage equality battle and the medicinal marijuana battle and the, you know, death with dignity battle. All of these things start in the states. And I think it provides a great safety valve um, in any movement for social change. Well, it certainly sounds as though uh, there's plenty of things we can take from from that, and, and, and hopefully people still are in the various movements you mentioned and anything that comes up as we move forward. Um, but but looking to the now, uh, I presume there are plenty of uh, centennial celebrations and uh, things going on, events going on this, this fall. Are there anything... Uh, are there any specific events that you guys would like to highlight as uh, particularly noteworthy? I think the opening of the New York State Museum suffrage exhibit is particularly noteworthy on November in, in Albany. Yeah, in Albany. Uh, yes. Yep. Albany. And um, a place to keep your eyes on is the Humanities New York website. They have a an events calendar, and they have been very, very proactive in celebrating the centennial of women and and voting. Right. So I and that's another place. Um, Karen and I and, and I'm sure Johanna, you too have individual um, talks and and book talks and things like that uh, scheduled. Um, uh, I know I have quite a few this this fall and, and Karen does too. So um, those kinds of things 
are going on. Thank you very much for uh, taking a moment to kind of bring us up to speed a little bit and show us the importance of New York State uh, to the to the uh, suffrage movement. Um, I hope people will, will check out the uh, the New York State Museum and the Humanities New York website and listen to you all as they can uh, around the state this fall. Thanks very much for joining us. That was Johanna Newman, author of Gilded Suffragists, and Susan Goodier and Karen Pastorello, authors of Women Will Vote. Gilded Suffragists is available from Washington Muse Books, an imprint of New York University Press, and is available on nyupress.org. You can use discount code SUFF20 to receive 20% off at checkout. You can keep up with Johanna and the press on Twitter at JohannaWriter and at NYUPress. Women Will Vote is available from Three Hills, an imprint of Cornell University Press. Visit threehillsbooks.com and enter 09POD to receive 30% off of this book. You've been listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast.